0: From VOA, Press Conference USA, here is your host, Carol Castillo. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Joining me on the program is my colleague, Kim Lewis, host of Issues in the News. Our special guest on this edition of the program is K.C. James, Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Previously, she served as the president of the Heritage Foundation, America's premier conservative think tank, where she has served as a trustee of the board since 2005 she was the first african-american and the first woman to hold that position while at the helm of the heritage foundation for three years kay james made a concerted effort to reach out and share its message with young people minorities and women secretary james was born in portsmouth virginia and raised in her early years in housing projects to a single mother in the city of richmond at that time Virginia was part of the segregated South. Ms. James is one of the first children to participate in the historic experiment to desegregate Virginia's all-white schools. She then graduated from the historically black Hampton University. During her distinguished career, she served in senior positions under four Republican U.S. presidents. Secretary James is the recipient of numerous awards for public service including the Spirit of Democracy Award for Public Policy Leadership from the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Ms. James has been a lifelong grassroots activist fighting for conservative values at the local, state, and national level. Secretary Kay James joins us via Microsoft Teams. Secretary James, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you so much, and I am so pleased to have such a wide audience today. Thank you for having me.
0: It's our pleasure, and I'm always delighted to welcome my colleague, Kim Lewis. Thanks, Carol. I appreciate it. Secretary James, this is Black History Month, and your string of accomplishments is extraordinary, especially as a Black conservative, and that's a rare combination. And you said, and I'm quoting you, I didn't become a conservative despite my roots. I became a conservative Because of them, end quote. I'd like you to talk about that.
1: (laughs) Well, absolutely. And I don't think I'm that much of a unicorn as an African American with conservative values. And sometimes I think people conflate conservative values with conservative politics and they are quite different. My definition, by the way, of a black conservative is someone who has the audacity to believe what their grandmother taught them. It's not deep, it's not complicated, it's not weird, but it's values that were instilled in us by our older generations. Now, that does not translate itself into conservative politics, and that's a distinction that I think is important to make. So, yes, I am, but I'm not that much of a unicorn. Uh, I do believe that as I talk to people within the community, we share many values, many values. Unfortunately, when you take those values into the political arena, they can get corrupted by both parties. And uh, it doesn't often translate into political victory.
0: Well, that's a very interesting distinction. With that, I'd like to turn to my colleague, Kim Lewis, for a few questions.
1: Yes. And on the subject
2: of education, we're in Black History Month, which is celebrated in February. But when you look at Black history as a subject, how should schools incorporate that into the curriculum? Should it be taught as a separate subject or as part of American history?
1: Yes, and what I mean by that is I look forward to the day when it is incorporated fully into American history and there's one history to tell about this great nation. It's American history. But so much has been left out. So much has been discarded. So much is unknown about the triumphs as well as the tragedies of African Americans in this country. That for a while, I think we may need a special focus on that, and it could and should be taught as a separate focus in the education system. So, yes, there's enough there that people don't know that we could fill up not a month, but an entire year with people coming to know and understand African-American history. But I genuinely look forward to the day when it is so incorporated into the American story that we don't need a separate month.
2: How does it get started into the curriculum of schools? Every state has their own school system. So how would one go about getting it started?
1: Well, I think as you see more parental involvement in education, demanding that the entire history of our country be taught, I think that as you see politicians who are held accountable, I think as you see standards of learning and as you see recommendations coming down from both the federal, state, and local level. There are multiple opportunities for people to have their voices heard about the necessity of teaching all of American history.
0: Secretary James, on the topic of incorporating African American history in a much greater way within our school systems. We're seeing a lot of controversy, even in the state that you represent, the state of Virginia with the new Republican governor. In fact, many of the Republican-led states are the ones who are having some issues with this type of curriculum. They conflate, some do, conflate what is called critical race theory with the importance of incorporating much more black history into our curriculum, whether it's the elementary or High school level. How do you respond to that? This is you know again a confusing of an esoteric theory that is taught in the university, but whose basis is we do have structural racism in the country, but people who advocate more black history aren't saying we need to teach that in particular critical race theory. Just incorporate more of our history into
1: the schools. Well, that may be a problem they have in some states. It's certainly not one we have here in Virginia. I have had multiple conversations with our governor. And as we have been in Black History Month and as I have toured the Commonwealth with him, visiting historic sites, we've come up with a catchphrase here, which is tell it all. All of the history should be taught, the good and the bad. We have scars in this country. We have things that we got wrong in this country. But what makes us unique is how we dealt with that, how we overcame that. And I have no problem focusing on some of the tragedies as well as the triumphs. When you fully understand the American story, when you fully embrace our history when you tell all of the history it makes you even more today to appreciate how far we've come the things that we overcame the people both black and white in this country who fought for equality so i think that sometimes as we talk about the issues of race and you know that's a very complex subject that requires its own full two- or three-hour conversation. It's a difficult conversation for some to have. It has not been a difficult conversation for me to have with our governor. He listens. He is embracing the history of our commonwealth, good and bad, and celebrating how far we've come and recognizing that we still have more to do. But I think we need to ratchet the uh, rhetoric down take it out of the toxic environment in which it exists right now, have conversations around our kitchen tables and in our church pews and across our backyard fences. This is an opportunity for us to lean into our history, celebrate how far we've come, because we have.
0: Turning to my colleague Kim for another question.
1: Yes,
2: I just wanted to change the topic just a little bit and looking at the Voting Rights Act, which is part of President Biden's domestic agenda. And it's been a very big focus for the Democratic Party. Democrats say that the right to vote is under attack in nearly every state across the country and federal oversight is needed to make certain every American has the freedom to vote. Yet in looking at what many media organizations report that President Joe Biden set a new record of votes with more than 81,284,000 votes in the 2020 presidential election. There were complaints of voter fraud by former President Donald Trump and his supporters, even with him going as far as saying the election was stolen. But just looking at the Voting Rights Act, what do you see is the issue there and why it needs to, To be taken over by the federal government?
1: Well, I'm not sure that it does. I think when you have one entity controlling voting, there's more opportunity for fraud and abuse and not less. I think the concern that we have is that the vote is such a precious right that we have as Americans and all around the world. The opportunity for your vote to influence the kind of government that you have that people have to have confidence in our voting systems. And so our mantra is we want to make it easier to vote, harder for fraud and abuse or for people to cheat. I know that in the last few years it has become more and more politicized with people on all sides of the equation losing confidence in the outcome of elections. I mean, I can remember people saying they didn't accept Barack Obama as the legitimate president, and then I heard people say they didn't accept Donald Trump as their legitimate president. So what are the things that we can do to protect election integrity so that every person who votes can have the confidence that their vote counts? That's what we need to do And I think as we push for election integrity and rebuild confidence in our systems, hopefully we can ratchet the rhetoric down and people can feel confident when they cast their vote that it really does count. Yes, absolutely.
0: Secretary James, before we go to a break, I just have a quick follow-up on that. Despite what you said, the actual 1965 Voting Rights Act has really been eviscerated over the past few years, And I was wondering if that disturbs you because it was protecting primarily the rights of minorities, in particular, black voters. And now we're seeing uh, the Supreme Court in particular eroding the core of this important act.
1: Well, I'm not sure I accept the premise of your question, which is that the Supreme Court is eroding that particular protection. I think what the Supreme Court is doing and what I hope we will all continue to do is to protect and make sure that when someone casts a vote, they know that it is safe, that it is secure, that it cannot be tampered with, and that their vote counts. And when Americans can rebuild their confidence in that system, which is lost right now. I was a part of the Carter Baker Commission after the debacle that we saw in Florida years ago, where we actually looked at what are the things that we can do to make Americans feel confident in their right to vote. And what's interesting to me is the things that we, as Republicans and Democrats, of goodwill could come together and agree on then are now viewed as undercutting the right to vote. We talked about voter ID. We want to make sure that who's showing up at the polls is the right person. That has nothing to do with race. That has nothing to do with undercutting someone's right to vote. We want to make sure that we are not opening up vote harvesting, where people go in and just harvest votes and take them in. People want to know that the voting booth is sacred, and I want every American to have the right to vote. This is not about suppressing anyone's right to vote. Every American should have the right to vote and that vote be protected and have confidence in our system.
0: We'll have more in just a moment, but first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Kay James, secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia, former president of the Conservative Heritage Foundation. I'm Carol Castiel, along with my colleague Kim Lewis, host of our sister program, Issues in the News, this is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a very loyal Facebook fan, Etel el from Abuja, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Back to our special guest, Kay James, Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And Ms. James, I just have to ask you one more very (laughs) short follow-up question on the voting. Does it disturb you, though, the raft of what many analysts are saying are restrictive voting laws emanating from Republican states around the country in the wake of the 2020 election? Do you see those as restrictive voting laws coming from these Republican states?
1: I do not. I do not. I think that there are people of goodwill who are trying to figure out how to return confidence to our voting processes and systems. You know, you have an international audience. They would be shocked at how In this country, we don't have protections surrounding the sacred right to vote. And things that they probably take as standard operating procedures, we are now looking in this country as overly restrictive. And they are not. The right to vote is so sacred. We should be doing everything we can to encourage every single American to get out to vote. And when they do, make sure that that particular vote is protected make it easier to vote, and protect that right to vote by making sure we have the appropriate safeguards around
0: it. Point taken. Well, we were previously talking about the Supreme Court, and so we would be remiss if we didn't ask you, Secretary James, about the fact that President Biden is preparing to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court to replace retiring liberal Justice Stephen Breyer. So I'd like to get your opinion on this uh, historic development in the party that is the Republican Party to which you belong. There is some controversy. A few senators have complained and saying that this is uh, inappropriate. Others, like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, say uh, this is fine. In fact, Lindsey Graham said, quote, put me in the camp of making sure the court and other institutions look like America, unquote. Where do you stand on this nomination?
1: I stand with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Which ones? (laughs) All of them. I'll tell you this. Anytime I can see black representation and representation by women, it's a good day. It's a good thing. Do I want decisions made solely on that basis? Absolutely not. The good news is that we have highly qualified women Even though I may disagree with them and would fight them on philosophy, ideology, and policy all day long, that doesn't mean that they aren't necessarily qualified and capable of doing the job. And so I am very proud of the fact that we have so many options for President Biden to pick from. It was his choice to say he wanted to do an African American woman. I will celebrate uh, the accomplishment of that African American woman. And after I finish doing that, I will try my best to argue with all of the policy positions that she probably has that I take issue with. So I know that's difficult for some people to wrap their heads around and understand, but I think we need more of that. I can celebrate the accomplishment while at the same time recognizing that I have deep and severe policy differences.
0: And now I'd like to turn to Kim again for a question.
2: Yes, Secretary James. Former President Donald Trump has continued to fundraise and endorse candidates for public office over the last year, while teasing a possible run for president in 2024. He continues to cause a divide in the Republican Party, but his public appearances and rallies still draw thousands of people. So what role do you see the former president playing as the midterm elections are approaching in November, and what is his future with the party?
1: His role is anything he wants it to be. The party will pick its leaders. We will probably have a broad range of people to pick from. I don't think it's my role or anyone else in the party to say someone should or should not run. So I love our country and the way we have options. And so welcome to the table. And it'll all play out, and I'm going to get my popcorn and sit back and watch it happen. Also,
2: Republicans are internally divided in their views of the January sixth, 2021 riot at the Capitol building, including former President Trump's role in it. So what is your perspective of what happened on that day? And how does the attack on the Capitol compare to the protests and riots that occurred in several U.S. cities in 2020 over the police killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others?
1: Boy, that's a complicated question that takes a long time to answer, but I'll try to give you my quick and dirty version of that. First of all, violence never, ever ever has a place in the American political debate and dialogue in this country. And when and wherever it happens, I don't care whether you are in an urban area and looting or going after our capital. It's never appropriate and should never, ever, ever be tolerated. Drop the mic. Having said that, I love this country so much, and I appreciate our form of government and I appreciate the things that are available to us to peacefully protest and use everything at our disposable to make our voices heard. But it broke my heart to see our Capitol under attack that day. And I just don't condone that kind of violence and protest, whether it's at the Capitol or in an urban area in America. Never, ever appropriate.
0: Thank you. So in light of that, Secretary James, I wonder if you could give us a sense of where you see the direction of the Republican Party going. I mean, you are a standard bearer of the party, and given these rifts and the outsized role that former President Trump is playing, where does the party go from here, and what does it stand for?
1: Well, I think there's a broader question that actually needs to be asked, and that is, Where's our country going? And I see that kind of disruption in both parties. And I guess I've been at this long enough, you know, being involved in government and politics for over 40 years. I've seen sort of the wax and waning of various factions within the parties. And I've seen people declare the death of the conservative movement. I've seen them declare the death of the progressive movement within the Democrat Party. And I've seen the waxing and waning that goes on within both parties. I tend to be an eternal optimist. And I think that as each party struggles to define itself, you will see leadership emerge and leadership fade away. And I have enough trust in the American people in both parties that I feel confident that we're going to get this right. And there may be difficult days, difficult conversations, difficult debates and discussions. But having watched this happen over decades now, I think that those discussions will lead to, in both parties, people who love this country rising to the forefront, people who want to see great things happen for this nation rising to the front and to the leadership in both parties. So I'm not as distraught as some people are about what they see going on, and I don't focus so much on what's going on in the Republican Party because I have way too many friends in the Democrat Party, and I know what they're going through as well. But I have confidence in the American people that uh, it'll all be okay. If you know enough about our history and how the parties have struggled internally in some of the debates, you'll know there's nothing new here. That may be true,
0: Secretary James, but does it disturb you that the RNC, the Republican National Committee, recently sanctioned two standard-bearers, Liz Cheney, a very conservative congresswoman from the state of Wyoming. She is sort of a persona non grata now because she is participating in the January 6th committee to investigate the insurrection on the Capitol. And then Adam Kinzinger, a representative from Illinois, some people say that's going too far.
1: Well, if it is, the party will correct itself. And I really do believe that there are multiple voices within the party. Uh, those voices are being heard and listened to. It'll all sort out. I'm not going to be able to sort out. Dear Lord, I can't sort out what's going on in the Republican Party right now as an individual. But I do have confidence in the people in the party that it will get resolved. It will get sorted out. And it'll all be okay.
0: Okay, now I'd like to turn to Kim.
1: Yes, I just wanted to ask one last question. Uh, Do you
2: think political parties are listening to young people and really the
1: American citizens in general? Well, if they aren't, they should be. And I can tell you that we had an extraordinary example of that here in Virginia, where it seems some of our politicians were just tone deaf to what parents were saying, to what taxpayers were saying. And when the politicians listen to the people, it's amazing what wonderful things can happen. So I think that when people ask what happened in Virginia, how did that happen? You had a politician who listened to the people, didn't take them for granted, and as a result of that, now has the opportunity to govern. And I think any politician, be they left or right, Republican or Democrat, should take the lesson that you can't be a politician if you aren't willing to listen to the voters.
0: Thank you. Secretary James, as we close, I just have a couple of questions related to your background, which is absolutely fascinating. You were raised, as I said in the introduction, in your early years in housing projects. You had a single mother, and you were one of the first children to participate in the historic experiment to desegregate Virginia's all-white schools. I'd like you to put on your memory cap and give us a sense of what that was like for you.
1: Mm, It was horrible. It was horrible horrible. Most junior high school girls are trying to sneak blue eyeshadow out of the house from their moms. And that's the biggest concern they had. But integrating the schools in the South here in Richmond, Virginia was anything but. We had to walk past barricades and screaming parents and barking dogs and just to get an education. And I want people to know that. I want people to understand that because I want them to understand that with all of that telling the history, what exactly happened, I can today say that that made me who I am today. We overcame that. And it's a story of triumph. It's an American story. It was a difficult period in our history, and I don't try to sugarcoat it or cover it up. And I am so grateful for those individuals who came before me who suffered even more than we had to do as we integrated the South. So Black History Month for me is a time of reflection. It's a time of thinking about and appreciating the shoulders on which we stand, the sacrifices that were made, the price that was paid for me to live the life that I live today. And I hope it serves as encouragement to the next generation who have to find their way in this country. I hope it serves as inspiration to them if we were able to overcome and survive, and in some cases even thrive, that they can too
0: and secretary james you have described yourself as a devout christian and the fact that your experience growing up in poverty with your mother on welfare and also you had an alcoholic father that all of these factors played a role in shaping your views on the importance of family and religion i wonder if you could just expand a bit on that you know to what do you attribute your success Mm -hmm. given these extraordinary impediments that you had to overcome
1: You know, I went back and studied the slave narratives, and this is a good opportunity during Black History Month to remind people to do that, because it occurred to me if they were emancipated and set free with absolutely nothing, And thrive to the point that we had Black Wall Street and we had the Harlem Renaissance and we had Black businesses and entrepreneurs and we started institutions of higher ed. I figured if we can learn from them and what I took away from that is. Faith played a crucial role. I don't know how anybody manages to survive in this world without a connection to a higher power and to seeking guidance and wisdom from a heavenly God. Number two, we recognized how important family was. And so many of our public policies tear families apart rather than encouraging and building families and the role that family plays in giving us everything that we need to succeed. And when I think about the value of the community and how the community contributed to my opportunities in this country, walking along beside a single mom to help her survive, the football coaches that encouraged my brothers, the uh, Sunday school teachers that worked with us, So I think that there are things that we can learn from history that can be a guidepost. And I certainly saw those things in my life. Faith played an important role. Education played an important role. Family played an important role. And so one of the things that I'm dedicated to doing is making sure that the things that got us here are not the things that we now discard. So let's not break up the family. Let's not diminish the role of faith in civil society. Let's do understand the importance of quality education in order for us to thrive in this country. So in a way, I feel like my life is a metaphor for all of what I see in our African-American heritage and history.
0: You are certainly a national treasure. Casey James is secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. She's former president of the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Once again, Secretary James, thank you so much for your time and insights.
1: Thank you. And what a pleasure to have the opportunity to be with such a great audience.
0: Press Conference USA on the Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. And joining me on the program was Kim Lewis, host of Issues in the News. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on the Voice of America.